Uh, one thing I want to talk to you about today is what I believe is most of our biggest context in ministry. So many of our evangelism strategies, it seems like, are only geared towards skeptics. They're geared towards those who maybe are curious or who have doubts, uh, maybe very apologetics-driven, and all that's important, and all that matters, and I hope we do more of it. But so much of our evangelistic conversation is driven towards maybe folks from other religions of how to have faith conversations, which really matters. I'm really thankful for that. I believe it was Moody who said, I like my way of doing evangelism more than your way of not doing evangelism. So I'm like the more the merrier, let's get as much of the gospel out as possible. But I've noticed that most training that takes place, especially in Baptist circles, is geared towards skeptics and a secular audience. When most of our context, I know there's many here who are gonna get on a plane one day with a passport and take the gospel to the nation, so it'll obviously be different there, but most of our context is a mom stressed out from having to pick up three kids at three different activities and is in line at Chick-fil-A another night of not getting home for dinner and they're trying to make sure they get everybody home in time to do homework, take baths, and get back out to school the next morning. They're not having time to be skeptics. They're not asking a lot of the questions that we're trying to answer. They're not really concerned about Zwingli's view on the Lord's Supper. Now, we need to know that. If I ever wanted, needed an attorney, I wouldn't want their legal education to be from watching Law & Order reruns on TNT. I mean, we need to make sure we know these things, and I value education very much, but for what? To be able to get the gospel out and make disciples. And in suburban America, most of our context, I believe, is what I call the largest religion in America. Now, I have zero data to back this up. It's more of a field test and just experience in pastoral ministry in a suburban setting. But I believe the number one religion in America is good people go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. The mom in line at Chick-fil-A, she just does not have hardly any faith questions. But she believes that she's fine, and her kids are fine, and her husband's fine, and her deceased relatives are all fine because they were good people. Every funeral I've ever been to, we are told that Uncle Jimmy right now is playing that big 18 holes in the sky. We just know that Bill is fishing in that bass lake in heaven right now. We're just so thankful that Grandma and Grandpa are reunited. She missed him so much. Dad's celebrating right now for that Braves World Series in heaven. They can probably hear him yelling right now amongst the angels. And their reason for believing that is simple. They're good people. Luke chapter 18 is where we'll be this morning. And we will see that this view is actually not new. It goes way back to the first century and probably beyond. But if you ask most people, and they'll tell you, they believe themselves to be good people. They're good folks. And here's what makes it really complicated in an evangelistic conversation. They're right. They are great people by the standards of this world. As long as you keep up with suburban what, culture, what morality looks like in your area, you can always feel confident that you're pretty good. And if that's not working, you can hopefully always find someone a little worse than you, right? Maybe a little bit worse than you. And if not, go to some serial killer in history and say, at least I'm not like that person. But God doesn't judge us by the standards of this world. His comparison is himself. 
So we compare ourselves to other people. Sure, we can feel that we're good as long as we're keeping up or as long as we're better than someone else. But when we compare ourselves to our holy creator, God, we realize even one sin separates us from him. And we don't need an impressive resume. We need redemption and reconciliation. Because the wages of that sin is death. But again, this view is not new. Luke chapter 18, Jesus talking. I believe this is in a first century version of what I'm talking about right now. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, believed themselves to be great people, and a pretty natural, I think, next step would be and look down on everyone else. Maybe I'm good and they're not. And he tells this story to drive home his point. Two men went up to the temple to pray. So they're going to the right place to participate in religious activity. One, a Pharisee. And you've studied Pharisees in class and maybe your entire life in Sunday school. And usually Pharisees, we just simply see them as legalistic. Like they're the rules people. They're like not very fun at parties. Like that's kind of how Pharisees have always been viewed. But really a Pharisee is someone who believed in themselves that because of their devotion, because of their participation in the religious activities that they themselves were fine and that they were good. Pharisees were the varsity level, the five star of religious people in this time. I like to say they were the Tom Brady of being religious. They were the greatest. And these were folks who did their PhD residence, not online. Don't act like that's not a thing. And here is one going up to pray. And then we see the other is a tax collector. This is not someone who simply worked for the IRS. A, sinner, a tax collector was considered the sinner of the sinners in this time, kind of a reverse Robin Hood. Not robbing the rich to give to the poor, but praying on the poor. Even selling out oftentimes the Jewish person who had sold out to Rome, overcharging people taxes who were poor and pocketing the money for themselves. Even today we go, that's horrible. So you have the varsity level, Tom Brady of religious people. And then you have someone who had been viewed as the sinner of the sinners, despised in his neighborhood and city at that time, and both are going to the temple to pray. So the Pharisee was standing and praying like this, we're told, about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Does a large, at-large comparison to the rest of the culture. A big, sweeping, broad, God, I thank you I'm not like everybody else. He says, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, and I'm a good person. Here's what I have not done like other people have done. And then he gets real specific. Remember, you can always find someone worse than you when it comes down to it. And he says, or even like this tax collector right here, I'm not like him. Here's who I am. Here's the good things I have done. And look at this guy. God, I thank you that I am the one who's behaving properly and doing the right things, unlike this guy over here. Then he gives more of his resume. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Then we see a strong contrast there. I love the word in the Bible, but, B-U-T. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come you might have life and have it abundantly. The wages of sin is death, but... We see the gift of life in Christ. That we're dead in our sins, but we've been made alive in Jesus. 
Oh, it's a strong contrast that's coming here. He says, but the tax collector. Go away from the Pharisee for a moment and lock in on him, he's saying. Standing far off, couldn't even bring himself into the main part of the temple where the Pharisee was praying, but kept striking his chest. We're told he wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. That was the shame he felt. That was the guilt he felt. And what does he say? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As in God, everything the Pharisee has said about me is true. It's all true. So I'm not gonna try to impress you with my goodness. I'm not gonna try to make the case of all the wonderful, amazing things that I've done. I only have one hope and I've run out of options. I stand before you guilty of sin. And my good deeds I might try to do can't cancel that out. That's like going to Whataburger and thinking your Diet Coke cancels out your double cheeseburger. It makes no sense. How many people really do believe that? Again, I'm not talking about intellectuals who are reading great Christian literature. I'm talking about the regular, everyday person in a community who thinks they're fine because they have more good deeds than bad deeds comparatively to the rest of their neighborhood and their kids' school and the parents they run with and other people they come across as a good person. And if not, they can name you the folks that they're better than. At least I'm not doing what that, at least, at least I didn't do that to my husband. At least I haven't neglected my family. At least I don't cheat on my taxes. At least I haven't embezzled money. Look at the things that I have done. And here is a tax collector saying, here's my only hope. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And verse 14 is amazing because we see that God answered his prayer. God answered his prayer. And look at the line Jesus draws in the sand. I tell you, this one, referring to the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. This one, not that one. There's so much here for us to understand and to grasp. The one who was standing in the temple praying and saying, God, I thank you. I'm not like everyone else. Here's the good things I've done morally. Here's the good things I've done religiously. Morally, he said, I'm not greedy. I'm not unrighteous. I'm not an adulterer. Religiously, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. And here's the tax collector standing there and saying, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. The Pharisee called me out. And it's no secret who I am. I'm a sinner. And I'm just gonna appeal and hope that you will show me mercy. It's really hard to reach people who think they're fine. It's really hard. It's really hard to have a gospel conversation when there isn't a clear starting point. When I was getting ready to leave seminary and go back home to Tallahassee to start a church, I was having a conversation. We were both leaving. It was the end of the semester with my neighbor who was packing up his U-Haul. We were packing up ours. He was going to Northern California to be part of a church planting team. And I was going to Tallahassee, Florida, which is 10 miles from the Georgia line. There's like three churches on every corner. Like Chick-fil-A's almost open on Sunday. They've considered it. Okay, it's like that church. So I had what I called basically missional guilt Missional guilt is like during spring break when you're in high school and all your friends are going to work in an orphanage in Haiti and you're going to Panama City. You know, kind of missional guilt. 
So in my insecurity, I just, you know, you start just kind of jibber jabbering. And I said, I said, man, I just admire you. I, I just can't believe what you're doing. Like, I, I'm going the easy route. I'm going to, you know, my hometown that's close to Georgia. And, and you're going to the hard place. Like, you're the one doing real ministry. And he goes, oh, stop it. So what? He said, where I'm going is easier than where you're going. Now, for the record, I, I believe the enemy is everywhere. So everywhere is difficult. And he wasn't talking about safety he was talking about context. And he said, where I'm going in Northern California, there's no confusion over who's a Christian and who's not. Either you follow Jesus or you don't. I'm sure there's exceptions. Either you follow Jesus or you don't. Where you're going, everybody thinks they're fine. It's like you have to get them lost in order to get them saved. There really aren't more mission fields in America than lesser mission fields. I should say greater mission fields than lesser. The context just looks different. What makes it different where I live is simply that it's very confusing to have a gospel conversation with someone who already thinks they're a Christian, not because of their beliefs, but because they believe themselves to be good people. And to me, and I, and I believe this is in the right context here, this is, a, this is a, a first century example of what's happening today. I mean, for the Pharisee, he's saying, look at me, I'm not greedy, I'm not unrighteous. That's just an equivalent of I'm a good person. Now they wouldn't say things like I fast twice a week. They definitely wouldn't say I give a tenth of everything I get, believe me. They wouldn't say that. But they would say things like, well, I come from a Christian family. Heritage can be a big barrier to sharing the gospel with someone. Are you a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. Well, what, what makes you a Christian? Well, I'm, I'm a good person and I, I believe in God. I come from a family that went to church and we pray sometimes before dinner. What was missing in that answer to why someone believes themselves to be a Christian? Did you know you can answer, yes, I'm a Christian and give your reason in America today without mentioning Jesus? Without mentioning Jesus, Galatians says that if righteousness can be attained by obeying the law, by keeping the law, then Jesus died for nothing. Doesn't it sound blasphemous to say that, that Jesus died for nothing? But when anyone believes that their goodness or their heritage or their generic beliefs make them right with God and get them to heaven when they die and earn them salvation, they are figuratively holding up a big flashing neon sign that says Jesus died for nothing. And here's the truth. We need to tell them that's what's happening because they claim to believe in Jesus. They just don't think they need him. So our evangelistic strategies usually are people who are atheists or skeptics or of another religion or somebody who's gone through major turmoil in their life, tragedy, brokenness. When most people, I know the nuns are rising, but they're still not the majority. When most people are in line at Chick-fil-A, and they're running to dance practice to pick up their kid and they're stressed out at work. But they lay down at night and I would hope that the spirit's pulling at them and tugging at them. But they lay down at night believing one thing to be sure. Well, at least I'm good. At least I'm not like other people. And we need to help people see that their job is not to admire Jesus, but first and foremost to see their need for Jesus. Because without that, you cannot believe that he's actually the one he claimed to be. I did a funeral a few years ago for a 19-year-old boy. You can imagine just how terrible that was. I mean, anytime someone that young, it was tragic, he died in a boating accident. 
Thankfully, he was a believer and also has a believing family. And it's very customary for those of you going to be in pastoral ministry that when, some, when a funeral is scheduled and you've been asked to officiate, you meet with the family beforehand, maybe a few days before, and you have a conversation about how they want the service to go and what's the order, how can I help you plan it, just trying to give them any kind of guidance in their grief that you can for the service. And the family was very clear. They said, please make sure you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know you, we know you do every Sunday, we trust you. We don't wanna waste our son's death. Make sure you're clear on Jesus being the way, the truth, the life, that everyone in that room needs Christ. Please make sure you do that. And I said, oh, I promise. It's a waste of my time. You don't want me there if I don't do that. I'm just a random speaker. Well, they asked four other people to share. It was like a coach and a college roommate, and a sister, and just, just folks that were scheduled to share thoughts about his life. And they did a really great job. They came up there and they would say, uh, said things like, I knew his name was Heath, and they would say things like, you know, he was the shirt off your back kind of guy, best roommate, lit up a room, and there's no one I trusted more, like he was the best brother ever, just really nice things. Then it was my turn to go up at the end and actually present the gospel to them, the good news of Jesus' death for sinners and his resurrection. And they're in the little chairs on the stage, the people who were speaking before me. So it was my turn to come up and I first turned to them and I said, I wanna thank the four of you for what you shared today. I think it was absolutely fantastic. A great tribute to Heath's life. I also wanna tell everyone in this room that everything they said about Heath is 100% true. But not one of those things is why he's in heaven today. He is in heaven today because Jesus Christ died for his sins and rose from the grave, and he believed that through faith and repentance. I've got to tell you, that is new news and information for a lot of people who already claim to be Christians. Because they think that God is to be believed in, yes, but it's a generic belief. It's kind of a big guy upstairs. It's, it's a uh, kind of glorified grandpa. It's maybe a Yoda-type figure from Star Wars a divine Santa. Now, the Pharisee didn't have that problem. He was someone who had memorized much of the scriptures, but he still did not see his ultimate need for Christ and redemption. He still did not first and foremost see himself as a sinner before God. So, of course, he's gonna stand up and pray and say, God, I, mean, I believe you. Remember, he's not an atheist or an agnostic. He's praying. He's praying. He's at the temple. But he still got it wrong because his answer to why he was right with God was based on his merit. And that falls short every single time. So the things you're learning in your theology classes about justification, about substitutionary atonement, these are things that really will come alive in your ministry because there are people all over the place who like Jesus, who even have him in a manger scene on their mantle at Christmas time. And then at Easter time, they have ham scheduled at Nana's after church. And they bought their matching Lily Pulitzer dresses and are gonna take a picture outside to apparently celebrate a resurrection of one named Jesus who they have never actually trusted in themselves because they love the ritual, they love the feels, the tradition, the family time. You could say the things that religion might give them, like a moral compass, Comfort when there's a time of need, but they've never actually needed Jesus. So what is it that's gonna blind most people in your mission field? For some, it's gonna be that secular, humanistic, hostile, self-worship kind of mindset. 
Some of you are gonna go to different contexts like the Northeast or to the West Coast or overseas with your passport to places where the gospel is few and far between. But other places, and oftentimes where you live right now, are going to be people who are generic theists. Who, If you ask them at a restaurant, are you a Christian? They would say yes. And their reason for believing they're Christians is simply they're not atheists, they're not agnostic, or they're not a member of one of the other world religions. So it's almost like a logical conclusion you draw when you live in certain parts of the United States. Well, because of that, then, then I'm a Christian. And here Jesus says, I tell you, this one, the Pharisee, who had good morals, had good religion, but didn't have Christ. He did not go back to his house justified. But the one who had nothing to offer and was well aware of it, and the only thing he could do was beg God for mercy and forgiveness, that God answered his prayer, and he went home different. Here's what we must also tell people. I'm reading into the text for a second here, and I'm gonna give that disclaimer but I think there's biblical precedent to warrant this. Do you think that tax collector, after hearing that news, went home and was ever the same? We're not told anything about him, but I think about the woman at the well in John chapter four. After she meets Jesus and hears the good news about living water, it says she runs and tells everyone about who she met and what he told her. And I know I'm using my imagination here, but when you receive that kind of grace and mercy, do you really think the tax collector went back to business as usual? I mean, do you really think he was doing a reverse Robin Hood the next week? Maybe, but when you receive grace like that, Christ's love then compels us. We realize that he died, so we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. See, it's grace that liberates people to live. It's God's love that compels people to go. Then he says this at the end, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. My toughest ministry context right now in the context of what we just saw at the end of 14 are middle-aged men. Tons of pride. You'd be shocked how many people we see at churches where the the wife shows up by herself, middle-aged wife. He's cool with her going. He's just not going. He's supportive, he would say, but he's not going at all. There's just so much deep pride there because to admit your need, again, not atheists, not agnostics, but they'll, they'll, they'll mask it as, I just don't like organized religion. I still don't know how you define that. Like what's unorganized religion look like? So I'm not really a fan of that either. And clearly the Bible isn't. But they'll mask with that kind of wording when there's just deep pride. And then you look around and you go, look at me, we have a nice house and my kids go to a good private school and I provide for their needs when not realizing that they still haven't provided for their personal greatest need, which is to be reconciled to God through Christ that only God can perform and God can do. I have a real burden for this. I truly do. Because I think oftentimes, I'm not the only one that I think is, that I think is getting this right, but I'm burdened that we're missing this because we wrongly assume someone is a believer simply because they know the right words, come from a Christian family and go to church four or five times a year. 
And we have to make sure that we open our eyes to this. So what happens when I have a chance to talk to folks in our own church about it, sometimes they'll be discouraged and say, I feel like I'm just never around unbelievers. Like, I'm really trying to figure that out. I just don't have a chance to do it a lot. You know, I'm a stay-at-home mom, and my main community is is other stay-at-home moms from our church, or they just kind of will, and I'm glad they're feeling that way. I'm glad they're feeling that urgency of going, I need to be around more unbelievers, and I'll tell them, I'll say, open your eyes. Because when you're thinking about unbelievers, you're thinking about atheists, agnostics, skeptics, and people of other religions. When when you think of the lost, you need to think of someone whose answer for why they are a Christian is something other than the blood of Christ on their behalf. And their eyes just open up and go, oh, that's my sister. That's my neighbor. I call them unsaved Christians. I know that sounds like a strange title for them but they're people who would say they are Christians and would be offended if you suggested otherwise. But their reason for believing so has nothing to do with anything the Bible would point to as saving faith. And it usually is linked to the fact that they believe that they are really good people and they're not atheists or agnostics. So yes, study on how to present the gospel to skeptics and because it's, I know the world's changing and, and yes, take apologetics and yes, be able to give a hope for the faith that you have, give an answer, like yes, do all of those things. But don't forget that where many of you are going to be called to preach and go in view of a call and go land at a First Baptist, wherever it might be, or, or a Grace Baptist or a Faith Baptist or wherever you're gonna have or community church that you know, doesn't wear a tie, whatever it could be, know you're walking into a mission field in that community. Don't be fooled by the presence of steeples on a street that doesn't believe there are people in the community who know Jesus. So don't feel guilty about it. Don't feel like you're taking the easy way out. But understand you're walking into an actual mission field. It just looks different. It's not covered in hostility. It's covered in indifference because the people believe they're fine. You're gonna see it with cultural Catholics. What a mission field that is in our communities. For many who were raised mainline Protestant like me, who went to church every single Sunday unless we were sick or out of town, dressed up extra nice on Easter, said a prayer before dinner, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. Until I was like 13, I thought we were saying lettuce. I'm like, I'm not gonna thank God for lettuce. I don't like lettuce, so that's what I thought, instead of let us. Uh, so we, we did all of those things. You'd ask me if I was a Christian, I would've said, absolutely. What makes you a Christian? We're good people, we're the Inseras, we go to church. I had the Lord's Prayer memorized. We say it before football practice. But I never had anyone tell me I was a sinner who needed to be saved. I could have told you about the cross, but it was more symbolic. It was more sort of a, it's just, just sort of a gathering ritual battle cry of go love people kind of, kind of approach. I don't know how to fully explain it. I still can't all these years later. But in our community, the historic churches, the legacy generational churches are mainline Protestant. Are there some remnant ones? Of course there are. But many are gospel-less. It's simply not present. I don't even know why they gather, to be honest. That's just my personal deal. But there's no empty tomb. I don't know what they do at Easter. My whole point is It's everywhere. Don't assume there are modern day, God, I thank you that I'm fine all around us. Don't be mistaken. And let us not in our firm, important, critical, and passionate belief in, insecure, in, in eternal security, 
I believe in that doctrine with all of my heart. You can call it once saved, always saved. You can call it perseverance. You can get whatever you want to call it. Eternal security. I believe in it with all my heart. But let us not be more passionate about convincing someone they are saved than actually making sure they are. And I worry sometimes in our faith tradition, in our tribe, that questioning someone's salvation is considered taboo and out of bounds. When Paul himself said to examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. So we can passionately hold to eternal security and believe that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it in Christ. We can passionately hold to that and at the exact same time be just as passionate as making sure people around us actually really do believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just my plea as I close to all of us is do not shrink evangelism down to simply skeptics and strangers and people of other religions. Realize there is a whole vast majority of unsaved Christians all around us. Yes, it's, yes, it's shrinking, but it's still the majority of people who desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It are those who believe that they need Jesus who will go away justified, not those who trust in themselves that they are righteous. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that we have your word. What an amazing privilege. We actually have the words of our God in the scriptures that our creator has spoken to us through his word. I ask, starting with me, you will never take that for granted, that we have the words of you available to us. But let us not just be hearers, but let us be doers. And I ask this story, the Pharisee and the tax collector will one remind us of our own story, of our need, our need for grace, that you saved us, not because of righteous things that we have done, but because of your mercy. So let us, as a result, be compelled by your love of what you've done for us in Christ, of the tax collectors we were, to now go and tell others and make sure they are clear that they need you, that it is not by works that we are saved, it is by grace that we are saved. We thank you that is true. I ask you to be at the seminary, continue to use the leadership here, that the students in this room, the faculty in this room will all be compelled by the love of Christ to go and make disciples, and that the classes that are taught today in this, on this campus will lead people to a greater love for you and a greater love for the lost. We ask you to be enemy out of this place, out of our convention, and allow us to be found faithful in what you've entrusted us to. Thank you for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you all.